to the responsibility to protect. Word kill. All societies are potentially vulnerable. Atrocity crimes. Timely and appropriate action. Welcome to Expert Voices on Atrocity Prevention by the Global Center for the Responsibility to Protect. I'm Jacqueline Streifeld-Hall, Research Director at the Global Center. This podcast features one-on-one conversations with practitioners from the fields of human rights, conflict prevention, and atrocity prevention. These conversations will give us a glimpse of the personal and professional side of how practitioners approach human rights protection and atrocity prevention, allowing us to explore challenges, identify best practices, and share lessons learned on how we can protect populations more effectively. On today's episode, we're delighted to welcome Mr. Charles Petri. Charles is a former senior UN official who, over the course of two decades, rose to the rank of Assistant Secretary General before resigning from the organization in 2010. During that time, he assumed senior-level operational and policy roles in Afghanistan, Burundi, Democratic Republic of the Congo, Gaza and the Palestinian territories, Myanmar, Rwanda, Somalia, and Sudan. In March 2012, he was appointed by the UN Secretary General to lead an internal review of the UN's actions in Sri Lanka during the last phase of the conflict. The report determined that the UN had systematically failed to protect populations from crimes against humanity and war crimes. The Petri report subsequently served as the basis for the creation of the Secretary General's Human Rights Upfront Policy. Since then, Charles has served on various UN commissions and been an international consultant on human security. Earlier this year, he published a book on his experience called The Triumph of Evil. Thank you for joining us today, Charles. No, thank you for having me. Uh, we typically start each episode by asking a little bit about your personal story beyond your vast expertise as a practitioner. Um, you had what appeared to be a very different career tra- trajectory prior to joining the UN. What initially drew you to working in this field? Well, I guess I've, I've always wanted to be part of something that was bigger than me. Um, if, I, if I'd had the capacity, I, I, I would have loved to have been a painter or a sculptor or a fiction writer. I, I, I've, um, um, I, when I was very, very young, well, when I was an adolescent, I, I thought I was going to become a Franciscan missionary, but, uh, but that didn't uh, work out. So, so I guess it's, it's, um, it's basically what motivated me to join the UN, to be part of an organization that, uh, that emerged from two world wars, um, that emerged from uh, an understanding or uh, yeah, a deep understanding of enlightened leaders of the time, that you needed some sort of body that would bring countries together, that would uh, bring people together, that you needed a body, that you needed such a body because allowing individual nations to uh, regulate or, or to allow a Darwinian form of world order to dominate was not going to bring peace to the world. So, 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 uh, yeah, so, so I was very much taken by that and, and the possibility of, of, of being part of something that was much bigger than me. And once you were within the UN, what was your path to appointment as Assistant Secretary General since you were there for so many years? Well, I guess you could, you could say that it had three different parts to it. So uh, I, I was incredibly lucky to, to join the UN in, uh, in 1990. I, uh, I was in the Sudan on a World Bank project 
when the, there was the changing government a little bit before and the World Bank closed its project and I wanted to stay on. And the head of the UN in Sudan needed a deputy to uh, uh, an emergency unit that was just being set up. And, and I, I, I found myself offered the position with, with the support of the French ambassador in, in Khartoum. And, and within a very short period, um, there was the Gulf War. And within a very, very short period from being the deputy, I found myself as the, the head of the UN emergency unit in, in Khartoum. I think, if anything, it demonstrated how uh, little important, uh, what little importance is attached to the emergency unit. But but there was, a, in French, we say, a concours de circonstance. There, there was a favorable uh, series of circumstances. So I found myself in, in Khartoum, head of a, a unit, an emergency unit. And I was, I, I became very, and, and as a result, I was involved in some, some uh, very, um, uh, I don't know if the word is crucial, but but very tragic uh, situation. So I was there when when the government of Khartoum started to displace what turned into 1.7 million internally displaced from Khartoum to outside. I conducted the the last uh, um, or, or the last uh, evaluation or assessment mission into the Nuba Mountains when the the government uh, started its campaign against the Nuba people. And so as a result of these different efforts, working with the, with the resident coordinator, the, the, the UN rep in country, you know, we, I, I, we were able to, to raise the, 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 the importance of these issues and, and the suffering that these issues entailed in New York. So on the one hand, I guess the, the Sudan thrust me in the middle of tragedy, but then I also in the Sudan saw how the UN basically was powerless in front of a, a, a government that refused to acknowledge what it was doing. Um, there, there was a visit of a very senior UN official who came to Khartoum to try and plead to, for the government to, to uh, change its, its, uh, its approach, to, to ease its, its actions, and, and the, the, the mission failed. Um, and and in, to a certain extent, well, it failed. And 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 I remember at the end of the mission asking the this this uh, senior UN person, you know, what about the new world order? Because I I think you know what was it, what was interesting, you know, having started in the emergency side in the UN at the end of the Cold War was this 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 hope that seemed to have emerged that there would be a much more principled form of international engagement. And he told me that the only two places where um, such um, such such a possibility existed for the UN to confront sovereignty in a way were was in where was in countries where sovereignty didn't exist. So former Yugoslavia and Somalia. So I asked to be transferred to Somalia. Uh, I was sent to Somalia a few weeks later. I arrived in Somalia just before, uh, well, a few months, quite a few months before Operation Restore Hope, which was basically the first post-Cold War international intervention. You could argue that it was an intervention based on, on, uh, on, on the, 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 um, the commitment to apply universal principles to really address human suffering. Uh, I was heavily involved in, in that mission, having been one of the first people, you know, one of the few UN people to be in Somalia before the deployment of the mission, when the mission, when the operation was deployed, 
I was very much at the center of it or involved in in the center of it. I wasn't at the center of it. Uh, not that pretentious, but I was involved in the workings of, of the, the mission and, and saw it collapse. You know, I was in Mogadishu uh, during the Black Hawk Down incident. I was there when the bodies were dragged through the, the streets of Mogadishu. And it was very clear immediately afterwards that the, the U.S. was going to withdraw and that the U.N., the UN were, you know, that this mission had, had lost all of its impetus. And, and at the time, you know, and, and it, was, uh, it, it, was, uh, it was a stark reality. And I couldn't help thinking that somebody was going to pay the price for this, you know, that this, this was the death of a noble cause. It was the last, it was the first and last real attempt to try and, and, and create a new world order in a way. I mean, of course, it all sounds uh, um, much more romantic than, than but, it, but there was that, there was that impetus. And, and then, of course, uh, Rwanda, Rwanda paid the price for Somalia, basically. And so I ended up, again, a long story, but I ended up in Rwanda as the Deputy Humanitarian Coordinator for the UN in Rwanda and, uh, and, and, and saw, yeah, and, and so I arrived one month into the beginning of, uh, of the genocide and, was, and saw much of what happened. Um, I think what was interesting for me, I, I, when, when I was asked to go to Rwanda, for a long while, I refused. That's why it took almost a month for me to go there because I really didn't want to go. I, I hadn't, uh, and as a result, I read nothing about Rwanda. I knew nothing about Rwanda when I arrived because I, I really didn't want to go. Uh, didn't want to be forced to witness the failure of Somalia. And, and, and as a result, I was really struck by the nature of the violence that I saw in Rwanda, uh, the systematic nature of the killings, uh, the sense of total despair, absolute despair of of uh, of those few Tutsis one would encounter, you know, so more more than despair, it was sort of a completely deflated, uh, um, and 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 just the 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 way that this violence never stopped, it just went on and on and on. So so I was in Rwanda, uh, in a way, Rwanda ushered in the the second phase of uh, of my career in the UN. And, and it was uh, a phase of uh, sort of a conceptual metaphysical phase, which, uh, which was trying to understand the nature of evil. And, and, that, and, and just those, those, uh, those months in Rwanda and, and uh, the nature of the killings really, uh, especially after having spent almost five years seeing other forms of violence and conflict. So after Rwanda, I went to New York for a year. Uh, I was the, the head of... Uh, section responsible for East, Central, and Southern Africa within the newly created uh, Department of Humanitarian Affairs. I, I, um, I realized very quickly that I wasn't a headquarters person. So then I went back into the field and became the special assistant of the Commissioner General of UNRWA. So for two years, I was involved in, in the Palestinian question and in, in supporting the Palestinian people. But I, I also arrived in, uh, in Gaza, and we were based in Gaza just at the time, uh, sort of at the end of the Oslo process and at the beginning of the suicide bombers. Uh, and, and, the, the, uh, yeah, and, and so while I was there, I, I think there were uh, um, um, 37, I, I think, individual attacks. And, and that, that challenged me again in trying to understand evil, you know, and, 
and trying, because of course, a lot of people were, were seeing the suicide bombers as acts of evil. And yet I couldn't, I, I had a really hard time trying to see if it was, you know, if, 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 uh, if, if that was, uh, if that was the right, uh, white, right word to use. Uh, I mean, clearly the, the actions were horrendously violent. They were vile. They were, uh, you know, they, they were strongly destructive, but they weren't an attempt to eliminate a people. You know, there was an economic, there was a social, there were politics, there were many different dynamics behind it. And, 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 and the, the outcome was, was a horrific outcome. But I, I, I couldn't, I, I couldn't, you know, I, I struggled to try and equate what the suicide bombers were doing with the Interhamway, who were the killers, the, the architects of the genocide in, 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 uh, in, in Rwanda. Because, and, and again, since I was living in Gaza, I mean, the, 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 most of the Palestinians in Gaza did not necessarily see the suicide bombers as evil or, or as I, they, they saw them as instruments of a just retribution to a certain extent. So, so, so that was, that, that was, uh, um, uh, uh, you know, I mean, in terms of the second phase of trying to understand evil, I mean, that, that, that was, uh, that, that was, that was extremely challenging, emotionally challenging because, you know, there, there, there is so much suffering that comes with the suicide bombers. But again, I, I think the, what I came out of, of, uh, of the Middle East is with the sense that what distinguishes evil is its absoluteness. You know, the, 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 the Tutsis in Rwanda were killed for this. Well, I remember Father Vieco, a priest I, I, I knew in Rwanda, and one day I, tried, I asked him, can you, you know, I, I'm having a hard time understanding this. And he said, you know, it's very simple. You know, Hutus are killed. Each Hutu is killed for a specific reason, either because of politics, because somebody wants his, his or her cows, because, you know, but a Tutsi is killed for the simple reason that they were born, that they are born. And, and, and I think that's the nature of evil. And for me, that distinguished uh, a, a little bit the, 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 what I saw, you know, the, the suicide bombings, the horror that was... Uh, perpetrated against people in, uh, in Gaza with what had happened in Rwanda during the genocide. And then from there, um, well, I, I basically, I spent three years as the senior official responsible for initiating and maintaining contacts with all of the Congolese rebels in the DRC. And I, I was very interested in going there because I wanted to see what had happened to the Interhamway. You know, what, what were these dynamics? I mean, for me, I saw Rwanda as having been a nuclear explosion, conflagration. You know, and the shock wave as it expanded triggered secondary explosions. So I was really, really wanted to understand what was happening in the DRC. And that's when uh, the third phase of my career stepped in. And that's realizing that uh, an individual who had been left officer in charge of UNDP, the development branch of, of the UN, during the genocide, who was alleged, you know, we heard stories about, um, about him having participated in the murder of 32 people, including uh, at least three UN, UN colleagues, 
having trained in Interhamway militia before the genocide while working for the UN. When I discovered, this was in 99, or when it was discovered that he was continuing to work for the UN. And so that was, that was sort of my third career, or no, my third, the third phase of my, my professional life in the UN was trying to get the UN to, uh, um, uh, to bring this judge, to, to, to investigate his case and to get him to account for what he is alleged to have done while at the same time honoring uh, the memory of the colleagues that he is alleged to have participated in murdering. So that, that was, uh, and, and that, that is the, the reason for the book, so we'll get back to that. But then afterwards, uh, you could say then I had sort of a parallel, uh, parallel track career. I, I had the career that I, I did. So after the Congo, I was in uh, Afghanistan for a year and a half, initially as the advisor to actually Ashraf Ghani, the, the Afghan government, and then for a year, director of policy and planning. Then I went off to Myanmar, uh, was the rep in Myanmar, um, you know, uh, managed to get PNG for uh, taking a stance in favor, you know, in support of the, the message of the monks at the time. Uh, and then, uh, then after that, um, yeah, where became, was the deputy SRSG, uh, deputy res, no, deputy special representative of the Secretary General for Somalia, and then was the represent the Secretary General's representative in Burundi. All along, so that was the, the official career. All along, I was still trying to get the UN to, uh, to investigate this guy, to, to pursue him. Uh, I failed. Uh, the UN, uh, at one point, a friend and I were able to, uh, to get his contract terminated. He sued the UN. The UN refused to build its case. He won two years' salary for, unlaw for unjustified uh, dismissal, which uh, you know, a number of us fought against. And then he became the leader of a hardcore militia in Eastern Congo, the FDLR, uh, was arrested, uh, was sent to the ICC. But because the ICC did such a bad job, because the, the, uh, the prosecutor did such a bad job preparing, uh, preparing the case, he's the first person to have been released from, uh, from the ICC. Um, it, was on, it, wasn't on, it was on a majority decision, two, two uh, uh, suggesting his release, one against. And the dissenting voice was the president of the, the chamber, who then wrote a 65-page dissenting opinion saying that she was going to accept the majority ruling because the case was so badly uh, uh, prepared. He was released at the same time, more or less, that I was in Burundi, and that's when I decided that I, I couldn't represent the UN anymore. That here I was, you know, as a senior UN official, uh, responsible for, you know, tasked with, you know, going to these rebel leaders you know, in the Congo and elsewhere, telling them that it was their responsibility, their obligation to, to uh, you know, to, to uh, respect and, and implement international humanitarian law, that, that they were bound by it. And yet I was, I was working for an organization that wasn't willing to do what was necessary to bring justice to its own. And... As you know, this is the UN, the, the institution that is the guarantor of the Genocide Convention is not willing to investigate one of its own who is alleged to have committed the crime. So, so that was a bit too much for me. And you could say I had a bit of a breakdown.
it wasn't sort of this very rational, I'm moving on. It was a profoundly painful, uh, it was a profoundly painful breakdown that made me decide I couldn't continue. Which is a, a really unfortunate way to end such a, a long career with an organization that um, you clearly thought very highly of when you first got into it. But I still do. And, and, and I mean, you're, you're right, but in a way, yeah, you're right. But then at the same time, you know, I, I, but because we'll get to Sri Lanka and the rest, I, you know, I, at the same time, I, you know, I, I, I did the work in Sri Lanka, was part of this commission to review uh, peace building, and it was on the basis of uh, the, the, the former Secretary General. So, so, so I, I still, you know, I, I'm, I'm fundamentally disappointed in the, in the, those who lead the institution, but I fundamentally believe in the value and the principles of the institution. Since you mentioned the Sri Lanka case, um, in 2012, you were named head of the Secretary General's internal review panel on the UN's actions in Sri Lanka. Um, why did this review need to take place and what were your findings? Well, it, it's interesting because uh, basically the Secretary General had set up an independent panel of experts at the end of the war in Sri Lanka, the civil war, and, and had asked this independent, very, very august body to review what could be done now. You know, how, could, how could Sri Lanka sort of deal with what it had gone through how could those who had perpetrated the crimes be held accountable? And, and the, the panel uh, did a fantastic job, of course. And, and they wrote a confidential letter to the Secretary General. It was a seven-page letter. Um, the first half, the fir half of, the, of the seven pages of the first page had to do with the fact that the panel was, was convinced that the, the, the Sri Lankan government would not accept the findings of the report. And so they encouraged the Secretary General to stand firm and push through. And then the six and a half other pages was basically the panel said that while they were investigating uh, what had happened, they came upon such horrendous uh, uh, examples of UN failure that, uh, that, that they, they felt that they, they, they um, they, they felt that the Secretary General should take it seriously and should investigate the UN's performance. And they said that it was so bad that they had decided not to put it in the report because they feared it would have been a distraction for their peace. And so they, they, I, I think they, they said, uh, you know, they said the way they phrased it is the, that uh, they described it as a, a low point in the organization's history. Uh, that UN agencies and, and individuals had failed in their mandates and had not upheld the UN's founding principles. And that's, and that's Ban Ki-moon, the Secretary General at the time, set up this independent, this internal investigation. And, and I, I was asked to, uh, to lead it. So, so we basically, there was a core team of three, Lena and Ben. Um, and then we, we, we had access to, to, uh, you know, to all of the, I mean, fortunately, since there had been this independent panel of experts, they had, uh, you know, wealth of documents that we were able to go through. So that, and then we, we, interview, we interviewed uh, a lot of people. And what came out was, as, as described by you at the beginning, the conclusion was that, the, that Sri Lanka represented the systemic failure of the organization, that basically the, the organization 
had had lost its sense of purpose, or, or no, not, not sense of well, yeah, I would say that, but had lost its understanding of how 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 much protection and the people should be at the forefront of their actions. So so it was felt that there was there there, there was. Uh, you know, there, there was a lot of there was a there wasn't that sense of individual responsibility. Uh, um, there, it, there, there was there, there, there was a lack of coherence in the overall UN approach. Many people were involved, but there was no one uh, one one uh, um, um, uh, strategy. You know that that really looked at putting protection at the forefront, which because it was the issue, especially in the Vani pocket. Um, that the UN uh, self-censored a lot of what it presented. It it, it decided not to raise uh, um, the casualty figures that some of its staff were were collecting because they didn't want to embarrass or, or didn't want to have difficulties with the government. It didn't raise them with the Security Council, so there was a massive self-censorship. So basically, the the um, you know in in a nutshell, what the report said is the Secretary General needs to tell. The, the the organization that it's the charter that should guide their actions and that in a way i mean it was a you know of course we you know, you can't, we, we wrote recommendations and the rest but but the one one thing we felt was really important was for the the secretary general to reaffirm the primacy of the charter and what's amazing is he did it i mean he, he sort of did two things the first thing is he uh, set up a, uh, an internal review because there was a lot of pushback on the report uh, there were, you know, uh, some people thought that I'd, I'd been, I'd basically that it was a hatchet job, that I was spitting in the soup. I mean, you know, which the expression of, uh, but, but I mean, they didn't realize, I mean, uh, anyway. And, and I even had a confrontation with a senior UN official who said, look, even if we did what you said we should have done in the report, it wouldn't have changed anything. And my response was, well, one, you don't know. If you haven't done it, you don't know. If they would have, and secondly, that's not the issue. The issue is you didn't do it, and and this was your, you know, that's fundamentally your mandate and fundamentally your responsibility, and you didn't live up to it. So, so there was so much pushback that that the secretary general decided to set up a panel or or an internal uh, um, uh, task force to review the recommendations and put in place an approach, and that's where human rights upfront came out. And then he and then he uh, he made a, a public statement um, in which in which he um, he reaffirmed the principles. He said that this was one of the three most damning reviews of the UN that the UN had failed in Rwanda, failed in Srebrenica, and had failed in Sri Lanka, and that those who were who were suffering had a right to expect so much more of um, of the UN. Um, and and he committed. He, he committed the UN to um, um, you know committed the UN to uh, honoring and living up to its responsibility to the people of the, the peoples of the world. I mean, I have tremendous respect for Ban Ki Moon. Uh, you know, I I, I think he uh, I think I, I understand that when he grew up in in Korea, it was during the Korean War, so so he had uh, he had a personal experience of the UN. But but he he really he showed tremendous courage uh, in in he was he he uh, you know he he uh, he did not shy away from the recommendations of the report and the the rec and the report was very very tough I mean as you can imagine 
because I'd already left the UN because of Rwanda. There were two things. One, I made sure that there was no reference to Rwanda in terms of describing the, the, the systemic failure. But you can imagine my anger. I mean, it, it was really clearly through the lens of the UN's failure to, uh, to, 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 uh, to take care of this case, this Rwandan case, that I, I ensured and, and my two colleagues were, were fortunately uh, very supportive, that I ensured that we didn't pull any punches. So the report was very, very, was voluntarily very, very hard hitting because, you know, uh, felt that it was, we were talking about an organization failing rather than individuals failing. Actually, we were talking about an organization failing that had allowed individuals to fail because individuals did fail in, in Sri Lanka. That's, a, that's incredible to hear how, um, how well Ban Ki-moon received the report in spite of um, incredible levels of pushback from the rest of the organization and I imagine member states too. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, but definitely from within, and and yeah, it was it was extraordinary, and, and yeah, and, and I, I think he, he deserves a lot of respect for that. I guess shifting to the the current time period, you know, over the, I guess the few years right after the human rights upfront um, initiative was laid out, we heard a lot about human rights upfront, and it was sort of framed a lot around atrocity situations um, that were coming up in that time period. And now with the new Secretary General, um, I think throughout his first term, we've heard a lot about his prevention agenda and commitment to human rights. And last year, he announced the call to action for human rights and the prevention of mass atrocities. Um, Where do you see the implementation of rights up front or these other sort of initiatives aimed at creating better UN action right now? Well, in a way, I, I think there are two parts to the question. There, there's uh, where, you know, what is the place of rights up front uh, uh, R2P in today's world that, that I think has fundamentally changed? And then there's the UN action bit. Um, in, in, in terms of, uh, you know, I, I think the world is in a very, a very bad place. Um, you know, I, I think... Uh, uh, the 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 respect uh, and support for multilateralism I think has almost evaporated. Um, I think you know, in a way, nine eleven, the 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 um, you know Afghanistan Iraq was more of an instrumentalization of the UN in 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 order to push uh, you know national or coalition agendas. But since two thousand sixteen, I, I think we've even seen. Uh, an erosion of respect for uh, international values and agreements. I mean, definitely uh, Trump, sort of at the forefront of reneging. But even in the UK with Boris Johnson and and his willingness to go back on on agreements that were made within the context of Brexit. So so I think we're we're seeing, uh, and now, you know, over the last few days, the the unilateral withdrawal of, uh, of the U.S., you know, um, yeah, and, and the inability of the, the rest of the West to, to come together, um, and we see, you know, Belarus. We we see the the you know the the the, the powerlessness of uh, of uh, of the international community in Myanmar. Uh, um, you know, the Myanmar since the, the coup. So so I think we're we're we've reached a, a, um, a period where 
I mean, one has to acknowledge that the way that R2P and rights up front have been pushed, which is in a very assertive, proactive way, does not has not produced the results that it wants to produce. That one has to completely rethink the the um, the, the the approach to uh, addressing atrocities and and I and I, I think you know I I think like you know given that there the, the, there's you know that one can have an international platform where one is you know, raising the issues and lamenting the suffering and the rest, actually it's on the ground that the difference can be made. And, and that's where I think we need to refocus and to look a lot more at civil society, uh, you know, looking and be a lot more humble. Uh, I mean, get sort of stepped down from, from our uh, pulpits in which we declare, um, um, uh, you know, the, the, the inviolability of these principles. I mean, little parentheses. I, I, for me, one of the saddest, uh, yeah, because I've been, I, I, I've been following very, very closely Myanmar uh, since the coup. I've been in regular touch with with some of the, the people uh, involved. And one of the saddest images that came out of Myanmar at the beginning were all of these people, all of these young protesters wearing R2P shirts, and then and then hearing these politicians, you know, most of them former politicians, even some government officials mouthing the importance of r2p and how you know when it it you know after libya looking at syria uh it it is so clear that these are false hopes that are being given to the people so for me many of the discussions i've had with these young is to tell them you need to understand that there will not be an intervention you know and and uh, and that's so that's for me one of the first first things is we we need to stop deluding those who are suffering, that they will be supported with these instruments. And then we need to rethink how these instruments can work. I think one, one of the most fascinating, well, many, uh, well, fascinating, I don't know if it's the right word, but, but one, one of the fascinating parts of, uh, of the Rwanda genocide was the role the Muslim community played in protecting people. You know, they, they, they protected Tutsis. Uh, in in the mosque in in, uh, in Kigali, for example. So you know, and and all of these stories of of um, Hutus who were protecting Tutsis. So you know, and and groups that were doing it. You, know, you have a similar. You know, if you look at the during the, the Second World War, um, the you know, and and the the Holocaust and the, the arrest of of Jew Jewish community Jews. I mean, these, these, these islands of tranquility that existed also in France, these villages that refused to give up and became safe havens for, for fleeing Jews. So, so I think, you know, I think what we need to do, and, and, and that's happening also in Myanmar. Uh, I mean, it's, you know, the, the international community is not able to, to function, but there is a lot going on. Civil society is, is, uh, is setting up mechanisms. There's a lot of solidarity. And I think that's what we need to refocus R2P human rights up front on. How do we support these civil society efforts? How do we support these local efforts? Which then, because as I said, your, your question has two parts to it. And the other part is the UN. And, and I, I think the UN is, is, uh, is in a very, very, very bad place. Uh, that uh, you you and and basically I, I I guess the big difference between I mean Sri Lanka was awful you know there the, were the recommendations made 
the Secretary General Ban Ki Moon uh, uh, embraced them. I mean, more than accepted them, embraced them. But then, ten years later, you had the, the another internal investigation done by an incredible individual, Gert Rosenthal, on uh, on Myanmar with the Rohingya crisis, and his report, and he admits it, is nothing more than a repeat of uh, of the Sri Lanka report. You know? And now, and now you have, I mean, the UN, you know, the UN failed the people of Myanmar, to, has been failing the people of Myanmar today. There hasn't been a resident coordinator. There's no, there's no coherent approach. The only big difference between, let's say, Sri Lanka and Myanmar is that the UN failing today has no impact. It, it doesn't, it hasn't, you know, the, the, the absence of the UN is not felt in these situations anymore because nobody expects anything from the UN. And that, for me, is a double tragedy. I mean, on the one hand, it's tragic that an organization that has so much authority uh, should, should be so irrelevant and, and that everybody should accept that it's totally irrelevant. But it's also tragic that an organization born from two world wars, from an understanding that you needed to approach the, you know, the international relations in a completely different way should become irrelevant. In many ways, I think we're back to the 30s and the irrelevance of the League of Nations at the time. And I don't know if you remember, but I remember growing up with that picture of Haile Selassie pleading in the League of Nations for the League of Nations to do something to stop the invasion of his country, Abyssinia, by, by the, 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 the Italians. And, and I think this is the UN of today. The, the UN has, has, uh, has, has, has been gutted of its essence. But one does not need to accept that. And there are many people within the UN who do not accept it. And that's one of the reasons why I wrote the book. One of the reasons I wrote the book, I mean, it's called The Triumph of Evil, but it's basically a call to arms. It's basically for those in the UN who still believe in its founding principles, for them to understand that they have, you know, it's, it's an act, it wants to be uh, an act of solidarity, to tell them they're not alone, that I've been down a path, you know, and that, that, you know, if there's anything to draw from my experience, it's don't give up, you know, fight, continue fighting to the very end. Even, you know, as Father Vieco, this priest told me, you know, if, if you, uh, if you believe in something, you believe in something to be fundamentally right. And yet you feel you're not accomplishing your task. Don't give up. You never know. You may be a, you may be the person holding a torch in the middle of darkness in the desert that will allow somebody else to accomplish what you wanted to accomplish. I know you've already touched a little bit on um, what inspired the book, but I wanted—I was wondering if you wanted to share a little on the book's background and um, the story you're trying to tell. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's uh, well, first, I think it's important to understand that the book's not an autobiography. Because uh, it's it's much more uh, because there are many parts of uh, of of my career in the UN that don't appear in the book. The book is very much focused on this attempt to get the UN to investigate one of its own, who is alleged because uh, for defamation, who is alleged to have participated in uh, in in the in the in the genocide in Rwanda, uh, and so it's it sort of tracks this effort. It it uh, 
um, um, and and actually, I mean, basically, it tracks a failure. That's why the triumph of evil. The essence of the book also is very much at the beginning in in uh, trying to explain that the reason evil triumphs, and that's a little bit, you know, you know, the whole thing don't tell show, and and that's what the book was trying to show that one of the reasons why evil triumphs is because people feel comfortable doing nothing. It's because people, you know, first, first evil over time is able to appear banal, you know, uh, that, 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 uh, you know, that, that, and as a result, it becomes very easy for people to feel comfortable in doing nothing and much more so within bureaucracies where individuals actually, uh, um, hand over their sense of individual responsibility to the, to the, 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 you know, to the greater, to the good of the organization. And, and it's trying to get people, basically it's trying to get people to understand that, that organizations are made up of individuals. And what I'm trying to show is that there are individuals, Gromo, I mean, for me, my, my best friend is, is uh, very much at the forefront of this story. Like Gromo, Tony Gregg, who was the, 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 the prosecutor, the investigator, I guess myself, you know, we are all individuals who still, who fundamentally believed and never gave up. And we are individuals who worked within the organization. So it's very much to push this message that you are, you are individually responsible. You have, no, you have to be conscious of the fact that you are individually responsible for the, for what the organization does. And if it's leadership, doesn't provide the guidance you need, it does not detract your own individual responsibility. It's an incredible message and it, it uh, reminds me a little bit of um, what the unfortunately late um, Dr. Ed Luck, who was the yeah. first special advisor on R2P was pursuing towards the end of uh, his life looking at the idea of individual responsibility, um, obviously with R2P in mind, but um, along similar lines. I think, you know, one thing that we've talked about a lot has been the the UN failures. You mentioned in the Sri Lanka report that you made a, a conscious effort not to mention Rwanda, um, but obviously it was on your mind. And then similarly, Ambassador Rosenthal's report on Myanmar made very clear the parallels between that situation and Sri Lanka. And yet, um, despite all of that, despite being uh, a UN official in a lot of different situations where mass atrocity risks were present, you still seem to have a lot of of hope. Um, And so I'm, I'm wondering if you have any ideas for how to overcome these challenges that we see again and again uh, in these situations? I, I don't know if I'd have hope. I, I, I think that's, that's a little bit too positive. Uh, I have commitment. Uh, and, 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 and I have, uh, you know, I, I, I haven't lost sight of what I think is the ideal that the UN has tried to embody and the principles. I mean, in terms of... Um, of the UN, I, I think the first is that the senior, I, I think the problem, you know, the senior leadership of the UN is very much in a realpolitik mode. So, so they're, they're very much, uh, much of what they do are based on political calculations. And, and whereas I, I think that, you know, could have worked in the past, I, I think what it does is it makes the UN increasingly irrelevant because the UN, you know, when you look at issues like 
climate change, like social inequality, you know, these are issues that are fundamentally changing the world. The UN's a bit player. I mean, the IMF is a much bigger player. The World World Bank is a bigger player, the, the, the Bretton Woods Institute. So I think the, the, the UN needs to understand that it's positioning in you know, on, uh, on the charter, that it needs to push the, the charter very much at the forefront. And then, then I think, you know, that the UN needs to go, the, the UN, I mean, the problem with the UN now is it's atrophying, that, that it's going through a slow death. And as a result, it's atrophying, you know, the, you know, the, 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 you know, it's not able to generate new dynamics in, inside, you know, it's, it's got its staff that it needs to keep on, you know, the, you know, the entitlements, uh, uh, it, 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 it's, it's, uh, it's shrinking. So, I mean, in the immediate, I, I think what's needed, one is to, comp- is, is to f- finalize the reform of the UN presence in country, the, the, the resident coordinator. Um, the, the resident coordinators in most countries now uh, continue to be uh, undermined by individual UN agencies. Uh, I, I think the resident coordinator needs to be given um, direct authority in the management management of uh, of a country's response uh, or the situation, uh, and and the right people need to be brought in. Uh, I think there needs to be a reform. Um, you know, I, I think the the. I mean, I would argue that that, that you would uh, you well, that, you know, this is pie in the sky stuff, but I, I think you should dramatically cut. Um, the, rather than give more money to the UN, I think you should dramatically cut the money that goes to the UN in order for the UN to go through a fundamental structural rethinking. And I, I think the value of the UN in today's world is it's, it's a normative. Uh, it's the principles. It's not the delivery. I mean, a lot of the delivery that the UN does, one, it's pretty expensive. International NGOs can do it even cheaper. And now on top of it, you have private companies who are doing it. So, so, so the UN's added value in delivery, I think, is is uh, is much less than it was before, and that's why I would, you know, I think, the the UN should dramatically refocus on uh, the normative uh, um, the principles, uh, um, you know, and 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 become the champion of that, and then all of a sudden it regains relevance, because it it all of a sudden it becomes a different a different uh, a different participant in the debate. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Expert Voices on Atrocity Prevention. If you'd like more information about the Global Center's work on R2P, mass atrocity prevention, or populations at risk of mass atrocities, visit our website at globalr2p.org and connect with us on Twitter and Facebook at GCR2P.